Well, good morning. Um, I want to start off with a confession this morning. Um, I have been wrong before. I know that may surprise you, um, but you have too. You've, you've made a mistake. You've made a wrong decision. There's something you've done in your life at some point that was wrong, and it's not because I'm a complete moron or that I am super unintelligent, and some of you may argue that with me. Some of you students may argue with after spending a week together in Panama City Beach, um, but sometimes we lack the certain information and the proper understanding of some things that prevents us from making the best decision, from making the healthiest decision. And so when it comes to the subject of sex, there were times where I got it wrong growing up. Um, there were times that I had a misunderstanding about what it was. I'll never forget when I was a kid driving down the road one day, me and my brothers were with my mom and somebody said something about the word sex and my mom turned around to my middle brother and said, do you know what that means? And my youngest brother said, I do. And she said, what does it mean? He said, it's when a man and a woman love each other and they kiss each other all over. And then he said, and sometimes they even start taking their clothes off. <laughs> and my mom said, that's not what it means. You need to stop talking about that. That's not something that we're gonna talk about in our family right now. And so it wasn't. It wasn't, my parents didn't talk about it a lot. It wasn't something we talked about a lot at the table, at dinner or anything like that. Now some of you, your parents were the opposite. They talked about it all the time and it made you wanna throw up. And so it was a very uncomfortable situation for some, I remember in middle school, or in, in elementary school, third or fourth grade, I don't remember exactly, my mom and I were actually talking about this last night, but I remember a friend of mine looked at me and said, Wes, you're a virgin. And I said, no, I'm not, you're a virgin. <laughs> and I had no idea what that even meant. And I remember going home and I said, mom, what's a virgin? And she goes, what, why are you asking? I said, mom, I'm not a virgin, am I? And she like passed out, dad had to go for a walk. <laughs> it was this, because I didn't have a proper understanding, I was, confused about the situation. Ultimately, it was time for my father and I to have the talk. And so we had the talk on the way to El Paso, just me and him in the car. There was no radio station playing. It was incredibly awkward. It was a lot of male and female anatomy and kind of what happens and what it's supposed to do. And that was pretty much it. And we didn't have a lot of conversation about the boundaries and the purposes and the greatness and the goodness when it comes to sex. And coming off of this week, Coming off of a week with high school students in Panama City Beach and being around our culture and seeing what's on TV and seeing what's all around us, I think it's an incredibly important conversation that we need to dive into today. To have a conversation about our sexual desires, about some of the tendencies and some of the habits and some of the temptation that creep into our life because our culture is obsessed with it. I mean, you can look anywhere and there are sexual temptations. There is, there is sex used to promote even a bag of Doritos. I mean, it's insane. I mean, you look at our music. Def Leppard has something about sugar. Bruno Mars is leaving his Versace on the floor. People are knocking boots. I mean, it is, every, the music is crazy about it. You go to the grocery store, you stand in line at Walmart and you see the magazines on the shelves and it's 10 ways to drive your man crazy. Or even in Field and Stream, on the magazine cover of a Field and Stream recently, it said, 10 ways to get your woman in the blinds. I mean, come on, really? I mean, Field and Stream? We're talking about hunting and fishing. But it's because our culture is obsessed with it. And my fear is, is that there are so many of us who have found ourselves imprisoned to our sexual desires, to sexual temptation, and we've never been able to escape it. We've never been able to break free from it. And so this morning, I want us to simply talk about what it looks like to find freedom from sexual captivity. 
And I wanna look at a passage of scripture in the New Testament about an encounter that Jesus had with a group of people, but specifically with a woman who was captive by her sexual desires, who had lived in some pain and some regret and some frustration for some choices she had made when it came to the idea of sex. And listen, I, I, want, to, I want to be clear this morning. God is pro-sex. God created sex. It's not like Adam and Eve were in the garden one day and God looked down and said, oh my gosh, what are they doing? And looked at the angels and said, where did they learn that from? I mean, God created it. He said, hey, Adam, Eve, this is what you're gonna do. Ready, go. And then you get to Song of Solomon and they're talking about it. And it's crazy, I mean, it's inside, it's outside, it's incredible, it's amazing. God is not anti-sex, but it is something that is incredibly powerful. It has an incredible intent behind it, and when we get it wrong, it can have devastating consequences. And so with that in mind, let's turn to John chapter eight and dive into this story to kind of begin to unpack what this might mean for us today in 2019 in a culture that is obsessed. Studies show that college freshmen state the number one reason for leaving their faith in Jesus behind is because they desire to pursue their sexual freedom. It's the number one reason students are walking away from their faith in Jesus because they're not understanding where it matches up. Where does my relationship with Jesus match up with my sexual desires, my sexual pursuits? And so let's get some understanding from scripture, from God's word this morning to understand more of what this means for us. John chapter eight, starting in verse two, it says this. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Now I wanna pause right there because I want us to have a very clear understanding of what is happening in this situation. What is happening, what are they talking about? They're talking about a specific thing called adultery. There's this mob of angry, self-righteous Pharisees, scribes that have drugged this woman who was caught in the act of adultery. Well, what is adultery? Well, it's pointing us back to the law of Moses, the 10 Commandments. The 10 Commandments are something that we're all somewhat familiar with, whether we've been in church for just a few weeks or maybe several years. We're familiar with the Ten Commandments and we have a, a little bit of a, a memory of what some of those are. Well, the seventh one is simply this, do not commit adultery. You can find that in Exodus chapter 20, verse, 15, verse 14. God, after, it's important that we remember this, after he had rescued his people from Egyptian captivity, he provided them with a standard of living. And it wasn't to rob them of the joy that life can bring. It wasn't to push them down, to make them miserable. After he had rescued them from slavery, he said, hey, now go and live this way. Trust me, this is the best life that you could have. Trust me in this. And one of the things he says is he says, thou shalt not commit adultery. In other words, you should not have sex with somebody who's not your husband or your wife. It's pretty clear, it's pretty black and white, and sometimes we can get confused and begin to think that God is more of a cosmic killjoy, just trying to rob us of the joy that life brings, but what God is actually doing is he's working to protect us. He's working to keep us free. He's saying, I rescued you from slavery in order to not find yourself back into some sort of slavery, then live this way. And it's important that we begin to understand this, but I think we have a misunderstanding of exactly what sex may be. And so go back to all the way to the beginning with Adam and Eve again. In Genesis chapter four, verse one, it says this. It says that Adam made love to his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. 
Now that's not a verse that we're teaching in our children's programming this morning. This isn't like on a, on a screen. It's like, hey, this is what this, it's, that's not what this is, because this is, but this is an incredibly important verse for us to understand. It means something. It says that Adam made love to his wife. The original Hebrew word translated to made love is the word yada. And it's the word that stands for, that, that means intimacy. It's the idea to know and to be known. To completely know somebody and to be completely known by somebody. Everything that we are is connected in this moment. It's something that's more than just a physical act. Our emotions, our spiritual bodies, everything about us comes together in that moment. It's the idea to know and to be fully known. Now I know some of you are probably looking at this umbrella down here and wondering what in the world does Wes have an umbrella in the room for? And I need to prepare some of you. Some of you need to take a really deep breath right now because I'm about to freak you out because I'm gonna open up an umbrella indoors. And you're like, Wes, don't do it. You're not ready for this, Wes. Um, listen, if bad luck was gonna get me, it would've got me a long time ago. Others of you are probably sitting there singing Rihanna, Brella, Ella, Ella, A, A. But there's a point for this, and I want you to think about, my, my skin tone is not very receptive to the sun. In other words, the sun and I have an abusive relationship. It's complicated, it's dysfunctional. I can put sunscreen on and still get roasted. I mean, I can put sunscreen on my face, stay out in the sun for a couple hours, go home, and my wife will look at me and say, did you put sunscreen on? And I'm like, I, I did. And she's like, no, you didn't. There's no way you did, because my face is just roasted. And so when I go to the beach or when I go watch my boys play baseball in an all-day baseball tournament, if there's an umbrella around, I'm gonna go ahead and find myself underneath that umbrella because it protects me from the sun. But if I choose to stay out here, I mean, bring on the frustration, bring on the pain, bring on the, re the regret, and bring on the aloe vera, because the sun does really, really bad things to me. And so today, as we have this conversation, I want us to think about the umbrella as the umbrella of successful sex. And you're like, this is kind of weird, Wes, what are you talking about? The umbrella of successful sex. Everything under the umbrella is good is perfect, is the way that it was designed to be in the context of a fully committed covenant marriage relationship. Anything sexual out from underneath that is incredibly damaging, is gonna always bring frustration, regret, pain. And so I want us to think about this, the umbrella of successful sex, because I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, Wes, that's a little bit restrictive. But as a pastor, I can tell you that every conversation I've had with students and adults alike, when it came to a problem that they were having that was sexual in nature, it was a result of them or someone else choosing to step out from underneath the umbrella. Stepping out from underneath the umbrella of successful sex never simplified life. It never made everything else in life make sense. It certainly never helps anyone draw closer to Jesus to continually step out from underneath the umbrella and to pursue our sexual desires and our own understanding, following our feelings, will always lead us to a place of frustration, pain, and regret. And it's interesting, as you reflect back to Genesis chapter four, we hear that 
this sexual experience is so much more than just a physical thing, but that's often what we hear. We think, oh, it's just like a game of ping pong or it's just like a game of football. If you're hungry, you eat. If you're tired, you take a nap. If you have the desire to have sex, then you simply have sex. And we just begin to view it as this physical thing. But Genesis 4.1 tells us it's so much more than just a physical action. You know, it's interesting. We begin to fool ourselves. We begin to think if no one gets hurt, if no one gets pregnant, if we're both in agreement, then do it. Have fun. Do it as much as you want to. And we fool ourselves. Even secular neurologists are beginning to study this and are beginning to understand the impact that this is having, not just in our physical nature, but in our wholeness as a human being. In the book Hooked, How Casual Sex is Affecting Our Children, these two neurologists do this scientific study showing the impacts of the hookup culture, specifically in young people. And they have an interesting finding. Listen to what they they say. It says, the individual who goes from sex partner to sex partner is causing his or her brain to mold in such a way that eventually accepts that sexual pattern is normal. The pattern of changing sex partners therefore seems to damage their ability to bond in a committed relationship. The kind of attachment damage that occurs after repeated sexual encounters is in many respects more pernicious than pregnancy or STDs because it typically goes unperceived by affected individuals while causing ongoing difficulty in establishing a lifelong and satisfying relationship. The point is, is these neurologists are beginning to uncover that the very act of sex can create damage that is incredibly difficult to undo. They're even beginning to see that there's something more than just a physical act here. It's a union, a physical, mental, spiritual, emotional union between two people. And the idea that I'm just gonna pursue this with whoever I want to when it feels right in the moment, that's okay, and that is destroying us. It is breaking us down. It is disintegrating our integrity as human beings. It's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. It's interesting, every other sin in scripture, it says stand strong. You can handle it. With with God's power at work, you you can push back against the sin, but for sexual immorality, it says run from it, turn around, and you go the complete opposite direction. Because every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. The woman in the story that we're reading today is pursuing this outside of the marriage relationship. She has stepped out from underneath the umbrella. And God's word, as we understand it clearly, is saying, hey, before marriage, hands off. After marriage, you get the Gatorade, the multivitamins, you put it in fifth gear and you make up for lost time. But before marriage, hold off. And the reason is he's saying, I'm protecting you from something. I'm protecting you from the damage, from the pain, from the regret, the frustration, the confusion, the hurt that comes when we choose to step out from underneath the umbrella. Before I dive back into the story about the woman, I wanna, I wanna press in a little bit further on this because I think it's part of the conversation that we don't have a lot in church because it makes us incredibly uncomfortable. And oftentimes, it's not just a discomfort that it might bring up or stir in us, but it's also this idea that maybe no one else around me is struggling with the same same thing, and it's the issue of pornography. Pornography is a epidemic in our culture. I was reading this week, according 
to reports, the porn industry's net worth is $97 billion. That's a lot of money. I mean, can you imagine what we could do in our world just to push back world hunger with $97 billion? I was reading that Hollywood creates 600 movies and makes $10 million in profit on an, in an average year. The pornography industry creates 13,000 films and makes close to 15 billion in profit every single year. And that's a number that's vague because there's so much that goes on underground that's not documented, that's not kept up. That's more money than the NBA, the NFL, and Major League Baseball make combined. I don't think this is a conversation that we can ignore. I don't think it's an epidemic that we can continue to just let run ravage in our society. There's something that we need to pay attention to and it used to be an issue that was all, all focused on men. But studies show that a third of women struggle with pornography addiction today. It's a growing issue for men and women. And I know what some of the pushback is and I hear this with students sometimes like, Wes, I, I hear what you're saying and I know you say that it's not right and it's not healthy, it's not best for me, but it's a better alternative than me pursuing a actual physical relationship with somebody because no one else is gonna be hurt by my actions. And that's the pushback that we believe. We believe, you know what, it's really not that big of a deal. You know, it's interesting, all the way back in World War II, the government provided cigarettes to the soldiers for years. And then they realized, uh-oh, this might kill you. And now today, if you continue to smoke, you know it's a little bit inconvenient to even try to find a place to smoke freely because we've recognized then it might be dangerous for us. I think the same could be said for pornography in our culture. Christians for years have said this isn't good, but secular media has said no, it's not that big of a deal, but they're beginning to realize, uh-oh, maybe this isn't good. Maybe this isn't healthy. Maybe Jesus' followers are not as narrow-minded as we've always thought that they are. Secular studies are beginning to show that pornography changes the chemical makeup in a person's mind. And they're unable to begin to view a relationship as anything more than a physical thing. In other words, as you begin to con become consumed with pornographic images and content, it's impossible to look at someone in a relationship, in a committed, even married relationship, and see them as anything different than a commodity for your personal gratification. And it's incredibly damaging. Because what that means is, is now that we have thousands and thousands and thousands of single men, single women, married men, married women, who are looking for a partner, who are looking to a spouse with unrealistic expectations, hoping that they'll meet the need like we've seen the need met in film, in fiction. And it's an incredibly dangerous thing. It begins to deaden our desire for real people the difficult thing with pornography is that it's not just a behavior problem, but it's a heart problem. And oftentimes we feel the guilt, we feel the frustration, and we get stuck in this repetitive cycle, continually making promises, God, I'll never do that again, only to do it again. And then to make promises again, God, I'll never do that again, only to do it again. And it becomes this cycle of frustration and pain, this prison of sexual captivity. And I'm not saying this to teach at you or to preach at you. I am saying this to have a conversation with you because listen, I understand the struggle. 
There was a season in my life when I was in college where I struggled with this mightily. And I got stuck in that cycle. And I began to think, man, I'm not gonna ever do this again, only to do it again. And finally, I got tired of simply praying about it and making promises to God. And I had some conversation. I'll never forget sitting around the table with my college roommates. And one of my roommates had the boldness to say, hey guys, can I just be real for a second? Because we all cared about each other. We had known each other our entire lives. We, we grew up together and then we went to college together. He said, hey, I'm, I'm struggling. He said, I can't stop looking at pornography. And every single one of us were like, me too, man. We're, you know what, it's, I, I'm right there with you. I am, I, yes, I understand. And we began to talk about what are we gonna do about this? How are we gonna hold each other accountable? What are we gonna do to change some passwords, to remove some opportunities in our lives, to pursue what we know is destroying us, what we know is wrecking us? And for some of you, that's the step that you need to take this morning. It's the step that you need to take this week. You've prayed about it for a long time, but it's time to confess that. Scripture says that there's healing that begins to take place when we confess to one another. It may be time to have a conversation with somebody in a healthy context. And listen, that person may not need to be your spouse, but it may need to be your brother who loves you and loves Jesus. It may need to be with somebody in our counseling center, and it's not so that they can make you feel shamed or condemned, it's so that they can help walk with you. Because it's okay to not be okay. And that's what we're here for. We're here to walk with each other because we know, and if you're looking in the mirror talking to yourself, you know it's wrecking you. It is consuming your mind, it is consuming your thoughts. And so I'm not saying any of this to push you down or make you feel guilty. I want us to be aware. I want us to understand the reality of such captivity. Now I realize that this lands in several places this morning. For some of us, we're overwhelmed with guilt. For some of us, we're overwhelmed with regrets. Maybe there's still some confusion. You're like, man, I don't know that Wes is really on point with this. For some of you, you're sitting there thinking, man, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this. For some of you, you you're like, preach it, Wes. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I believe. You go, you go, you go. But I want us to dive back into the story. Because, listen, sexual desires are awesome. But as awesome as they are, they can be incredibly damaging and put us in a place that we never intended to be. For some of us, we're stuck in that prison and we need to step out. And we're not real sure how to step out. But I want us to understand something. Look what it says in verse four. It says that they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery. Remember, this mob has drugged this woman before this group of people who are learning of truth about God are beginning to understand who Jesus is. They dragged this woman who was caught in the act. I mean, can you imagine the shame, the guilt? I mean, she, she probably just wants to disappear in this moment. They drag her before them because they caught her in adultery. And I gotta ask the question, where's the dude? I mean, nothing has changed. Men get praised, women get shamed. And it's something that continues in our culture. And it goes all the way back. But this woman had chosen to step out from underneath the umbrella. We, we believe that she probably had a good understanding of the law of Moses, which was the law that they lived under at this time. It was, what, it was the standard of life they chose to live for. Verse five, it says, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. The result of stepping out from underneath the umbrella in this situation was death, literal death by stoning. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. 
They're trying to trick Jesus. They're trying to get Jesus into a contradiction against what God's word says. So Jesus, he bends down and he begins to write with a finger on the ground. Notice Jesus doesn't even say anything. He just gets down on a knee. He gets down and he puts his finger on the ground and we don't know exactly what he wrote. But scholars believe a lot of different things. But here's what's interesting about what's happening on the scene. He's out in front of Herod's temple. And scholars believe it was a stone road, a stone paved surface that he was on. It was in Jerusalem, so there's probably dust on the stone. And Jesus, fully God, fully man, puts his finger on the stone and he begins to write something. Maybe he was writing exactly what the woman was guilty of. Maybe he is showing her and he is confirming for her, hey, you're guilty because it says thou shalt not commit adultery. But then he stands back up and it continues on. And look what it says. It says, as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. At once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. I mean, can you imagine the tension in this moment? Just this woman being drugged in front of this crowd after being caught in the act is, is bizarre. But then there's this tension because Jesus begins to call some people out. He's calling out the self-righteous. He's calling out the people that are living in this religious tradition, religious practice, and they're disregarding their own sin, looking to someone else's sin and saying, man, you need to be judged. You need to be held guilty. You make me uncomfortable with what you've chosen to do. Let's do something about this. And it's a tendency that we can fall into in church as we begin to walk with Jesus. We begin to feel real good about ourselves. And we begin to look down to everybody else who's struggling with some of the things that we used to struggle with, perhaps. And we begin to elevate ourselves. We begin to take on this self-righteousness. And Jesus wants to expose the self-righteousness in this moment. And so he goes back to the ground and he continues to write. And again, we're not 100% sure what he's writing in this moment, but he's got his finger, fully God, fully man, on the stone. There was another time that he put his finger on a stone all the way back in Exodus when God began to write and scribe the Ten Commandments into the stone. But this time I wonder if maybe he wasn't writing, thou shalt not commit adultery, but maybe he's writing, honor your father and mother. Maybe he's talking about gluttony. Maybe he's talking about pride. Maybe he starts to just list and make this collage of all these other sins that we can so quickly fall into. All these areas in our life where we fail to trust God and what he wants in our life. And then something interesting begins to happen. It says, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. It's interesting, Jesus wants us to see our guilt. He wants us to recognize where we've decided to step out from underneath the umbrella. But it's for a purpose. He has a purpose in this story. Look what he says. Jesus stood up and hit her in the head with a rock. Wait, that's not what it says. Jesus stood up and he said to her, woman, where are they? Where'd they go? It's just me and you here in this moment. Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, and this is powerful, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. In this moment, the woman recognized her guilt she recognized there was a consequence for her actions. There was a consequence in her life for failing to trust what God had called her to live. And the consequence was death. 
In that moment, she thought she was about to lose her life because she thought a rock was gonna hit her in the head and take her life from her. And it's what she deserved in this moment under the law that she was living in. Jesus steps on the scene and he takes a posture, not of pride, not of power, not of arrogance, but he humbles himself and he takes a knee before her and he says, listen, there's forgiveness for you. Yeah, you messed up. You've made some poor choices. Yes, you're guilty. But today, I don't count you guilty. I don't condemn you. I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to love you. Now go, and from now on, sin no more. Was this a story about a woman being rescued? Absolutely. Was this a story about us realizing that we're all sinners and none of us can stand in judgment of anyone else because we've all fallen on our face sometimes? Yes. But even more than that, this is a story about a woman. And it was a story about more than just a moment. He says, go, and from now on, sin no more. This was more than just feeling safe. This was more than just feeling helped. This was more than just feeling healed. What Jesus is saying, he's saying, from now on, sin no more. What he's saying is it's not just about this moment. He's saying there's something I want you to step into. There's something new. There's a new life. There's a new story. There's a new chapter I want to begin to write in your life. There's a freedom I want you to experience. And as you think back on this moment, you think back on this experience, would you begin to trust me and believe what I say and begin to step into this? You see, there's this math equation that I like to use when it comes to this, and it's simply this, information plus application equals transformation. And what I mean by that is just taking the idea, taking the information, taking the experience, taking my understanding. In this moment for this woman, she had an experience with Jesus. She had an encounter with Jesus. In her most shameful moment, Jesus steps onto the scene and he offers her an invitation, an invitation of forgiveness. He doesn't use his power over her. There's such a huge contrast in the the mob of angry men who drag her out in their self-righteousness. They use their power over this woman and Jesus takes his power that he has and he humbles himself. I mean, I've gotta think that this began to kind of shake her mind up. She'd never experienced this before. It was his humility that gave her the opportunity at healing. And as she took this information, she had a choice to make because he says, from now on, sin no more. What he's saying is saying, this moment right now, this information you have right now, you have a choice to make with it. Can you apply it? Can what happened today impact tomorrow? Can what happened today impact next week, next month, next year? Can it impact the rest of your life? It's a choice that you and I have to make. And as we have the understanding, as we have all of the information and we begin to see Jesus for who he really is, we can trust him by applying that information. And the result of that is transformation. He begins to write a new story in our life. Because we've been wrecked by, we've been imprisoned by our sexual desires and sexual temptation for years, potentially. Maybe our entire lives. And I think what Jesus is trying to say to this woman and what he's trying to say to us tonight is he's saying, here am I. I did everything necessary so that you could find freedom. Will you trust me? And let me begin to rewrite your life. You see, this is pointing to a whole different, a whole, the great epic moment in the life of Jesus. You see, in this situation, he took a posture of humility, but it's pointing to the moment when he would take the ultimate posture of humility, when he would actually go to the cross. And I begin to think about, because I don't know how this woman's story turned out. We don't know, the story doesn't continue. It's just left with this invitation. But ultimately, Jesus would go to the cross. 
And he would take my consequence, he would take your consequence, that is death upon himself. It was the ultimate picture of love and humility so that I could find wholeness and healing. And in that moment, Jesus gives his life. And I wonder what this woman began to think as she saw this man hanging on a cross who had stepped into her life to rescue her, not just in the moment, but rescue her from the life that she had lived to give her a new life. But see, Jesus didn't just go to the cross. He didn't just give his life. He came back to life. And I'm not talking about some resuscitation. I'm not talking about some reincarnation. I'm not talking about Jesus flatlining for 30 minutes and then writing a book about it that became a New York Times bestseller. I'm talking about he was dead. He was in a grave for three days. It would be like today a man dying and his body being put in a casket, lowered down into the ground, dirt put on the casket, and then three days later you're walking down the street and you see the man and he walks up to you and he goes, what's up? I mean, we can all agree that's unusual but it's the greatest news the world has ever heard or experienced. And it's the most important thing for us to realize that it's that that gives me an opportunity to step out of the imprisonment that I've experienced because I've been chasing after my sexual desires for way too long. It's his power that gives me the power to break the chains of the addiction of the temptation, of the tendencies, of the habits. And so the adequate response today is that we would respond to this invitation of new life, new freedom, by saying, Jesus, you did what I couldn't do. I was supposed to die, and you saved me from that death. And my response to that, here's my life. I give it to you, everything, everything that I am, even my sexual desires because I've followed my heart for too long and I've followed my heart out from underneath the umbrella for too long and I've experienced a lot of pain, a lot of shame, a lot of regret, a lot of hurt. And so today I trust you. And I know that trusting you means I may have to make some difficult decisions. I may have to take some really difficult steps, but it's worth it because I know you, I trust you, and I know that you love me. And when we see that, it doesn't matter how strong our sexual desires are as we begin to understand the strength of his love for us, it gives us the power to step out of the grave of our sexual temptation.